going on everybody welcome to another episode of adventures in devops joining me in the studio today my co-host jonathan hall what's up guys and today our special guest we have with us doug newman from rpo how are you doug i'm doing great will it's great to be here thanks for having me thank you for being here i'm looking forward to this conversation so to give the listeners a little context you want to tell us a little bit about your background yeah, sure. Um, I am a career software engineer. Uh, worked at startups, worked at big companies like Microsoft. I've written code. I've led software teams. I'm probably better at leading than actually coding. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not that good at leading, Will. But all that said, um, I do have production code out there these days. And uh, it's 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 fun. It's a joy. So, um from a DevOps perspective, I, I think I, you know, I come to DevOps more from the dev, dev side than the ops side, but I've spent a ton of time working on cloud infrastructures and uh, building out operational infrastructures. So um, kind of have a pretty good sense for how that gets done these days as well. Right on. Speaking of cloud infrastructure, we're going to be talking about disaster recovery today. So... I don't know anything just, about that, so I'm, I'm looking forward to learn. I mean, I, I think that's what happens when I leave the room. Right? <laughs> right. The disaster part or the recovery I'm part? the disaster part. The recovery okay. happens after I leave. It's a tag team operation, you know. Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> so, seriously, though, I mean, I run in AWS. I have my servers in multiple regions according to AWS best practices. Why would I need to think about disaster recovery? Yeah, so uh, yeah, just a little context in general. I I am a founder of a startup these days that builds a disaster recovery solution for AWS, um, and so uh, you know that's I, I believe why you invited me, Will, to come join you guys here today is to kind of talk. Oh, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Um, and you know, fundamentally, I think resilience is something that everybody uh, builds for. They aspire for. They they hope that they have achieved. Uh, yet everybody still seems to have outages. And, um, you know, disaster recovery is kind of part of your strategy for for achieving resilience and being able to come recover from these outages, um, especially the big ones, the most existential ones that can oftentimes be threats to the con- continuity of a business. So um, in general, we think of resilience as having two halves. There's high availability and there's disaster recovery. High availability is what you build into your workload so that if bad things happen, your system doesn't go down. Disaster recovery is what you enable so that if you go down despite that high availability, you can always get back up. Uh, And in a lot of ways, it's kind of like insurance. Yeah, I don't have that either. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, No, so disaster recovery... To put it in a like a little practical application, we we talk about high availability. We run in US East One, because that's where y'all run too, right? Everything's in US East One in AWS. Well, our workload, our workload is a multi-region active workload across three regions, including US East One, uh, which is perhaps the least reliable region that we could discuss. <gasps> no, yes, it has a reputation for sometimes going down. Oh, damn it. So high availability is all about using the multiple availability zones in a specific region. And then disaster recovery involves having a way to fail over to a different region should the odd scenario of U.S. East 1 not be available, right? Well, that is that is a way to look at it. I think in general, high availability is about architecting a system so that you have redundant components that can um, automatically pick up from each other. Sometimes that's because you're load balancing your workload across multiple systems. And if one of those goes down, the load balancer stops sending it traffic. 
Other times it's because you have two redundant systems, one of which is taking traffic, but if it goes down, your system is automatically going to fail over to the other and that, that failover can happen through various means. But in all these cases, high availability is hands off. Uh, you don't have to intercede in order to recover from whatever that event is. The system automatically operates. And to the point you were making, the most common way we see this in AWS is that people deploy workloads across multiple availability zones. Each availability zone is one or more distinct data centers. And that gives you high availability in the face of traditional data center outages. Those are things like power outages, fires. Uh, Google had a data center flood a couple months ago. Um, I think that one might still be offline. Um, but <laughs> those, those kinds of outage events, um, availability zones, give you a great architectural underpinning for building a high availability uh, resilience. You can build high availability across multiple regions in the cloud as well. Um, and generally, that looks more like, uh, you know, it, it's more like NoSQL systems distributed across, you know, large geographies, actively taking traffic in multiple regions at the same time and eventually consistent across those regions. And I'm throwing out a ton of buzzwords here, Will. I'm sorry that I, I'm just getting into the weeds so quickly. No, no, but keep going. I've almost got bingo on my buzzword bingo card. Oh, fantastic. Great. <laughs> um, you know, with the right architectural investments, you can build yourself a high availability uh, architecture across multiple regions, in which case you're resilient to much grander outages in the cloud than just a fire in a single data center. That said, there's a lot of architecture that goes into that. And that's not appropriate for everybody. And so that's, for many people, where disaster recovery comes into play. We're not going to build the high availability across multiple regions, but we still want to make sure that if a region goes offline for an extended period of time, we can get back online ourselves and we can use disaster recovery to get us there. I'm thinking like, so from a, um, so let's talk, let's talk just a little bit about the actual implementation of that. Cause there's, you know, I think a lot about when it comes to technology, there's like, there's like this saying of there's three ways to do it. There's um, do it yourself. Um, there's uh, do it with me or I'll do it for you. You know? So if we think about the do it yourself mode for accomplishing yeah. this, you kind of touched on that a little bit with the talking about like the database specific where you have databases in multiple regions and they're eventually consistent, which is a lot of, of architecture. And, and that's going to be highly dependent on the, the skill set, the team that you have and the different technologies that you're working with. And all of those have to line up in your favor for that to work. But a lot of times we don't get the, um, we don't get a vote in what systems we're working with. So that kind of puts us in a, a different mode model. Sure. And I think that's where RPO, your company, comes in and helps. So what does it look like from that perspective? Yeah, so um, effectively the RPO takes single region workloads in AWS and knows how to continuously replicate those into a, an alternate region of AWS. So we provide disaster recovery within AWS. Um, and we should talk about cyber recovery too, because that's another scenario that we do that's not about regions, but rather about bad actors. But we'll come back to that in a second. Um, but the way that RPO works is you point us at your production environment and we go scan it and find everything that you're using in there. All of your data, all of your infrastructure and the configuration. And we know how to back up all of those things using what's built into the cloud. So, you know, there's multiple ways to back up an EC2 instance in AWS. And we, we know how to do that in multiple ways, depending on the service levels that you're trying to achieve with your disaster recovery strategy. 
there are different mechanisms for doing this with an RDS database. There's different mechanisms for doing this with an S3 bucket. And then there's all this networking and security and identity and autoscaling containers, serverless, all of these things that live around the data. And so we, we know how to scan all of that, how to back up all those distinct things, typically using the native mechanisms in, in the cloud platform, and then go restore that into another region um, when you need it. So, uh, and it happens all through automation, uh, whether or not you've got Terraform, CloudFormation, Pulumi, you know, your infrastructure's code of choice, um, we can do recreate all those environments and get you back online in as quickly as Amazon can launch your systems again, typically at minutes. So, it, I mean, fundamentally, it's just backup and recovery. But the recovery <laughs> can happen in a different region, and the backup needs to back up a lot more than the data. It needs to back up the entire cloud environment. So, does that mean you're running um, running duplicates in multiple regions? So, like from a cost perspective, did you just double your operating costs? No, it means that you have to have your data staged uh, in what we call warm storage. So it's not hot, but it's not archived in Glacier where it's going to take you 24 hours to recover it. Um, but in warm storage, uh, and so you're going to pay the cost of storing your data in a disaster recovery environment. That's fundamental to any DR strategy is having your data backed up in a different location and therefore paying for it a second time. Right. Um, but you don't have to have running systems, running servers, running databases. We're not spinning up NAT gateways, load balancers, all that kind of stuff. The cloud is elastic. We can just bring those things up on demand. And that way it, it doesn't have to impact your bill. You know, a well-done disaster recovery strategy only adds 2 to 3% to the overall cost of your cloud uh, infrastructure. Oh, wow. That seems like a pretty reasonable cost for having a a good disaster recovery strategy yeah it is and i'll be honest it depends on the shape of your data if you have a bunch of massive data sets and hardly any compute well you're paying for the cold storage or the warm storage of the data you the the ratio of data to compute doesn't get you to that two to three percent but in a typical workload that we see you know it's just a couple percentage points added to your cloud bill to have everything ready to go in the other region this is so far out of my field of expertise. It's hard for me to, to even <laughs> questions to ask, <laughs> which is Let's sad talk. because I used to work for a, a data uh, or a uh, disaster recovery company. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just didn't work on that product. <laughs> yeah. Um, we did talk though. I mean, you mentioned, Will, like the DIY versus have someone do it for you kind of thing. And I'll totally acknowledge like RPO is on the have somebody do it for you into the spectrum. Um you were a pretty turnkey product. You connect us to a cloud environment, tell us you want to recover in this other location, and we just take over um, and do that. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of people, especially DevOps practitioners, that want to build stuff themselves and that have invested in a lot of cloud automation and um, are trying to figure out how to solve these problems um, on top of those frameworks. And we work with a lot of those kinds of customers. In general... You know, your infrastructure as code that you would use to rebuild the environment uh, doesn't contemplate data recovery. It doesn't contemplate things like secrets and secrets manager and how you're going to restore those or users in cognito user pools and various things that are kind of, they're not data, but they're not configuration. They're sort of live in between. Um, And, you know, we help people figure out how to reason about those things and how RPO can solve that for them. But if they're going to DIY themselves, we have plenty of conversations saying, well, this is how we do it. And this is, you could go build that yourself as well. Um, and so in general, when we talk to DevOps practitioners about, about disaster recovery, and they're asking, well, what do I need to do to my, to my CDK investments in order to enable this? You know, it's really about understanding, well, how, how are you backing up your data? How are those backups going to integrate with your code? How, in order to recover things when you are restoring a system with data, um, how are you going to replicate your other configuration, things like your ECR repositories where your container images are and stuff like that? And um, there are ways you can you can 
do everything that RPO does and build it yourself. And um, we end up talking through a lot of those things. For sure. And I think that model fits a lot to um, just like the general trend in software engineering over the past, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 years of stop building things that are the same for everyone. You know, things like authentication, you know, everyone has authentication and um, like diving right into. (laughs) No, no, your system's good, Jonathan. It's it's good. Don't change a thing. (laughs) <laughs> another another example that has come up at every company I've worked at is a ticketing system, you know, whether you use Jira or um, GitHub issues or, you know, there's hundreds of them out there or get mad at all of them and decide to build your own. And then six months later, regret that decision. I think this kind of follows into that model because you touched on a lot of things there, like replicating your secrets and your ECR repositories, in addition to the data that you know that you have to replicate in cloud environments, there's a lot of subtle things that happen in the background that you don't realize that you needed to be replicating until you try to fail over. And then those things are continuously changing. So you could do it once, but then if you're using AWS, you know they introduce a new feature that makes a change to it. And so you've got to not only run your core business and do your core daily operations, but then also follow the AWS change logs to see how that impacts your DR strategy. Or you can just use something like RPO where that's your core business, you know, and you're focused on that a hundred percent. Yeah. I told you there was this, you know, a time when AWS in particular used to talk a lot about the undifferentiated heavy lifting of IT and you know all of the things that that businesses that weren't necessarily technology businesses were having to pay people to do, such as racking servers and wiring data centers and um, things that that aren't strategic and material to the bank that you're trying to run or something. And so you know the promise of the cloud has been that that they can take over those workloads and let the bank focus on what actually helps them provide better service to their customers. Disaster recovery, unfortunately, was not included in that that vision. So banks have to build their own disaster recovery. And what we're doing with RPO is just saying, we can take that undifferentiated heavy lifting off of your plate and let you go focus on banking. Banking's maybe a bad example, but... (laughs) Unless you're a banker. (laughs) Cool. So you mentioned before we started recording here some... um, horror stories that help illustrate the need for disaster recovery. So, well, I mean, I'll start with like the story that got me into this, which was, um, this was in 2017. This is a pretty famous event. um, So probably a lot of people listening who lived through this, but um, back in 2017, I ran a software team that was at a telecom. Uh, Telecoms like to own their infrastructure. They're kind of allergic to the cloud. Software engineers like the cloud. They, They like bright, shiny objects. Um, and so my team was pushing workloads into the cloud in, in an environment where that was not always appreciated. Um, <laughs> and I was the one standing up in meetings saying, well, the cloud is more resilient than these data centers we have. And we're uh, building more resilient software because of it. And resilience is really important in telecom. There's this five nines of availability is the standard that you're trying to meet. And we were doing great with that in AWS until one day an Amazon employee was performing a routine maintenance operation, made a typo, took down S3. Everything builds on S3. It took down pretty much everything in US East 1. And uh, we had a five-hour outage in the middle of the day. Um, and that was an eternity. Uh, <laughs> and that was, that was the honestly, the event in, in my career where I realized that um, there was a whole new level of resilience that my team had not even contemplated that we needed to be prepared for. And the thing is, Will, like when you're in that, in the moment there and you're two hours in on this outage and they're not telling you what's going on and you're, you know, the executives are breathing down your neck saying, get us back online. And your answer is, I, I, can, I can rebuild the system, but there's no data. The data is all trapped in, in US East 1. Um, and we don't know, is it going to be over in another hour? Is it going to be a day? Is it going to be a week? How, what's happening 
how long is it going to take? And luckily, historically, I think the longest outages Amazon's ever had have, have pushed 24 hours in duration, um, which is a long time, but that's a lot better than, than 72 hours or um, what could be longer. But all that said, we were unprepared for that particular event. And um, so we went after that event, we went and built multi-region redundancy for those workloads uh, to make sure that that particular outage wouldn't happen again. But we were only focused on that one outage, not an outage of uh, the EC2 control plane, uh, not an outage of Kinesis like happened a couple of years ago, the day before Thanksgiving. Um, the other services we were using, we only now were resilient to S3 outages. And um, that probably really wasn't good enough. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I usually start with that particular story, although that's that's maybe not the most interesting one. It's just a personal one. Um, we talked a little bit, uh, touched on the idea of cyber disasters, um, and you know, so much of the conversation that we have with people is about resilience to cloud outages, and that's important, but um, there's a lot more ransomware going around these days. There are a lot more bad actors that you need to be concerned about. And most people's investments in security focus on keeping those people out of the environment. Uh, but the rubber hits the road when you have to recover from a bad thing that happens once they get in. And so I oftentimes like to spend more time talking about these kinds of events. Like there's a... Uh, I think it's uh, MGM uh, casinos in Las Vegas that are currently offline because of a ransomware attack. I don't know. Maybe they've gotten back online in the next past 24 hours. But it's been days that they can't, uh, as I understand it, book new hotel reservations. And the casino, sometimes I hear it's online, sometimes it's offline. They're losing a lot of money because of a ransomware event. Um, there's a pretty famous outage from a couple of years ago where an employee at Cisco who worked on WebEx got mad and just deleted 456 EC2 instances out of their production environment. Uh, <laughs> it took them two weeks to rebuild that production environment. If you think about it, probably everybody listening on this podcast who is a DevOps practitioner working in the cloud has some level of administrative access to a production environment. And you you have to you have to give that to people. That's uh, they can't do their jobs without that. But if that person makes a bad decision or if that person's access gets stolen by somebody else, then that gives them carte blanche to go do very destructive things, criminal things. The person that did that got thrown in jail. Um, but that said, it's kind of too late. They already had the two-week outage. And thankfully, they had the data so they can recover it. It just took them two weeks to rebuild all those systems. Um you know, disasters come in many different flavors that you have to be prepared for. For uh, sure. And it's not always malicious. I mean, I think it's human nature to go to the malicious intent first, but it could just be, you know, that you were pointed at the wrong environment. You had the wrong environment variable set on your system or the one that I've seen over and over again in my career is someone pushes their AWS access keys up to GitHub. Yeah. And it literally takes seconds for someone to discover those on GitHub once you once you commit and push. Yeah. It's amazing how how quickly they they can discover that and take advantage of that. Um, the one that, that's bit me multiple times in my career is I thought I was connected to the test database before I deleted <laughs> this data. Turned out that was the production database. And um, I have on many occasions, uh, been scrambling to go figure out how am I going to restore those rows from from a backup. Um, you know, another relatively recent story. This was last year uh, at Atlassian. They had um, two teams. One, I guess, was responsible for writing a, a script to clean up some data. Another team was responsible for running that script, and they didn't communicate effectively about the arguments to the script, and so. <laughs> When they ran the script, they they gave the ID of like an entire the entire site that need a, a subsection of which needed to be deleted rather than just that subsection, and that caused them to go delete hundreds of customers' uh, Jira installations, I believe. So, um, 
you know, it took them three weeks or so, as I recall, to go back and recover that data and get those customers back online. Um, classic, just miscommunication. There was, you know, nothing malicious intended there. Uh, but teams don't always communicate well, and these these things happen. So they're definitely accidental at times. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about, I mean, I, I think when, when people hear disaster recovery, I, I think, lay people in particular, people who, who don't think about this uh, as part of their daily job, tend to think huge disasters, you know, the data center floods, tornado or a hurricane or, or uh, you know, some sort of natural disaster or some, some backhoe goes over the, the power line and the whole data center is disconnected from the world, things like this. But you just touched on another topic of, of like more isolated disasters, like somebody accidentally deleted 6,000 rows from a database. You don't need a wholesale data restore. Um, so on the one hand, it's probably less of a disaster because, you know, the business is still running, probably. Uh, it's affected a small subset of customers. On the other hand, it maybe seems like a harder thing to deal with because, you know, if we just had to restore everything, maybe that would at least feel simpler because, uh, you know, we, we know where we are. We know that everything's gone. Everything has to come back. When you have this sort of isolated thing, whether it's human error or one disk got corrupted or whatever the case is, um, how do you plan for these sorts of cases uh, so that, in particular, so that you can recover quickly? Because, you know, in the, in the Atlassian case, you don't want to restore the whole database because that probably takes hours or, or, or at least longer than necessary. Uh, you just need to restore a small subset of things. How do you, how do you plan for these sorts of unexpected... Yeah, so first, I think what you're hitting on is um, at some level, your recovery process needs to be aware of the application that's being recovered there. You need to know, like, what is the schema of this database so that I can go extract those 6,000 rows and put them back in? How am I going to filter that table down to just the rows that I want uh, based off of what I deleted and whatnot? And so there's a very surgical component that requires you to be extremely deep on the application you're running to be able to to do that. Um, And I think in those particular cases, you're going to have to have a human involved that that understands that application. You just need to make sure that you've got everything prepared so that they can do that as efficiently and effectively as possible. So first and foremost, you have to make sure you had that database backed up and backed up relatively recently or according to whatever your tolerance is for possible data loss. Um, And then, you know, it's, it's a question, do we know, do we have a, a bastion host in place. And if we launch a new RDS database and we uh, can actually get into this environment and then we have all the right tools in place so we can pull those rows out of one database and restore them back into the other and just uh, prepping through a few scenarios like that and thinking about what what needs to be there uh, in order for us to effectively enact that. But you're only going to get so far with that, Jonathan. I think there's always going to be some component of do we have the right people on the job in the moment that understand how to how to take this seed of a solution and actually get us out of this problem. So and I you know totally acknowledge that what we do with, with RPO is at the infrastructure layer. We can't go in and do that surgical recovery of the six thousand rows. We can recover that entire database, but that might be too big of a hammer for you. Um, but what we do instead is we focus on these, you know, the end of the, the recovery spectrum that is harder for people to build that. How am I going to take my running workload out of region A and drop it in region B, pick up with no data loss in just a few minutes and keep going? Those are that's a pretty hard problem to solve that that we come in and give a, people a turnkey solution. around. But, but, but even then, in this case of 6000 rows deleted, you could presumably restore that database not replacing the, the current one, but just a, sort of a backup, and then query that backup from the restored data to get to select those 6,000 or, or whatever you need to do in that case, right? To perform that yeah. surgery. That's exactly, that's the surgery that you have to do. And the, the best you can really do is just make yeah. sure you're prepared for surgery. Uh, you don't necessarily know what you're going to have to cut out of the patient, but um, make sure you've got a scalpel and a, and a clean gurney. My medical <laughs> metaphor is failing me all of a sudden. Here, guys. I, I didn't go to med school for a reason. I wasn't smart enough. But uh, I, I watched Smash enough. Today. It all makes sense to me. <laughs> okay. Sure. Yeah. And I'm sure that's very accurate uh, medicine they were practicing in the jungle. Yeah. 
it, it's probably um, it probably aligns a lot closer to our version of work than um, than not. Yeah, you know, just where it feels like we're we're in the trenches and, and getting shelled while trying to to do technical work. Definitely, so, I, I I think the conditions are less than ideal oftentimes. Now, you you said that uh, RPO handles a lot more than data. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we can expand on that a little bit. I mean, suppose I have a, a Kubernetes cluster running hundreds or thousands of microservices, and I depend on some other services, uh, you know, S3 and, and RDS and, and who knows what else. Does RPO take care of all of that? Or is it moving towards taking care of all of that? You know, wh- where does it sit in terms of handling everything I might need to care about? Yeah, I mean, that's that's where we shine is that exact scenario. So um, RPO knows how to back up not just the AWS stuff, but all your Kubernetes config, back up your persistent volumes that you've got inside of Kubernetes, um, understand the relationship between those pods that you're running there and the security and networking and you know uh, container repos and things that are defined outside of Kubernetes at the AWS layer, and then be able to wire all that back up. So we, you know, in that scenario, we can extract all the configuration from Kubernetes, go create you a new cluster in your in another region, push that in, but rewrite it all on the fly so that it, you know, references the new subnet IDs for where these things should be running. And it references different IAM roles for identity and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so that, yeah, that's the big, the big picture. A great example of what RPO is focused on doing is, is solving that bigger picture problem. How how does this differ um, aside from the data aspect, which I understand is its own thing? How does that the whole Kubernetes management and everything? How does that differ from somebody setting up Terraform or or whatever infrastructure as code sort of scenario? Yeah. Um, and maybe the answer is it doesn't. It, just most people don't do that. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I think um, it it. It solves a couple problems that, that people's Terraform doesn't typically solve. So first and foremost is data. Uh, when you build a Terraform config to go build out a cloud environment, launch a Kubernetes cluster, and push some, some configuration into it, uh, you typically don't go and say, oh, by the way, I want these persistent volumes created from these snapshots of data. Um, uh, and so that's a, that's a big part of the problem. Um, but there's, there's more than just that. And the example I really like to, to kind of push at on is, um, your, your definitions in your, in Kubernetes, or if you're using the Elastic Container Service in your task definitions, they're, they're going to reference Docker containers that you've probably built and deployed into an, uh, ECR repository, um, in a disaster scenario, a lot of people are thinking, well, I'm just going to run my build process again. Um, and they don't necessarily recognize that their build process has a lot of external dependencies on things that live out on the internet. Uh, frequently, these are these are packages, open source packages that are being downloaded and packaged together and uh, wrapped into Docker containers that are pushed. Um, those packages probably 80% of the time live in AWS and they get downloaded from AWS. And if you're trying to be resilient to an AWS outage, you you might not actually have the ability to go and access those things. So one of the, the things that's really first principle that we solve with RPO is we should be able to recover you without any external dependencies outside of your own cloud environment. So rather than relying on a rebuild of a Docker container, we just back up the ones that you already built and you push them into your source environment. And then we can rebuild, we just restore them um, into an ECR repo in your recovery environment. Um, so there's, you know, it's really about all that kind of knitting all that back together and making sure that it's um, it's a full fidelity clone of what you deployed into your production environment um, and just taking away all the considerations of how do I make this portable? How do I make this stateful? How do I, uh, you know, be resilient to these kinds of, you know, things that happen beyond my control um, in the event of a real recovery? I think that's one been one of the problems that 
really highlighted um, the value for us at whenever we use RPOs. You, if you like, if you build your infrastructure with Terraform, and then you know a hundred deployments later, because every every day, every week, however often your development teams are deploying new features and and updates to your application. Um, Terraform's not really aware of that because that happens outside of Terraform. But with RPO, every time that changes, it's replicating it over. And then whenever you do have to execute that failover scenario, you're already saving time because all that infrastructure is already built over in the DR environment. You just have to launch it. But then it's also been updated with every deployment so that your late, the latest version of your application code is over there in addition to the infrastructure. Yeah, I think that in a, in a world where virtual machines are a significant part of your workload, the state on those virtual machines is oftentimes very important. Sometimes that's, that's business data, but oftentimes it's application code like you're describing here. But it's still important that, that you have that recovered in your recovery environment to be able to get back online. Um, and that you aren't necessarily relying on people to either by hand or through automation that may be dependent on things outside of your environment, uh, recreating those things. One of the things we've talked about that is interesting to me is we've talked about different types of events that would trigger a disaster scenario. And I think there's probably some time and effort we could all spend in each of our respective teams just talking about what are the most common things that could happen to our environment, because that's going to differ from team to team, but really talking about, okay, what what's the likely failure scenario here and how are we prepared to deal with it? Um, and that takes a lot of time and effort. And I think it's been one that, in my experience, we don't spend very much time doing that because it feels non-productive. You know, it's, it's like, um, I just think as humans, a lot of us tend not to do long-term planning and this falls into that category, but there's a lot of different ways where you could be impacted by this and not see the, the different um, roadblocks that you're going to encounter until you do like a, a walkthrough of that scenario. Yeah, I think, um, and you know, one way to look at it is what's what are the most likely failure modes. The other is what are the most catastrophic failure modes, uh, because fundamentally, a lot of us work in businesses that are hundred percent dependent on the technology that we're operating, and if that technology had some form of catastrophic failure, that could put us out of business. Um, so I think you have to ask both of those questions, Will, and I agree with you. Uh, it's it's difficult to find the time to step away from the tickets and everything else is having in a daily job to reflect on those things and to brainstorm as a team and then to choose to make it a priority. Um, and ultimately, that is really one of the reasons why RPO exists is because in the face of these things, people knowing that they need to invest to be resilient to them, they just also acknowledge that they have competing priorities and they don't have the time to go invest there. Um, and so we come along with a turnkey solution that means you can turn up disaster recovery in 30 minutes and go back to all those other things and then sleep easier at night. Yeah. And I think one of the things in hindsight that you'll, you'll discover is as you progress through your career, I commonly hear people say, Oh, my, my manager doesn't give me time to do that. Or, you know, the business doesn't give me time to do that. And I think one of the ways of thinking about that is the first error there is that you're asking for time to do it. And the assumption from the business side of your company, regardless of what company you're working for, their assumption is that you're already doing that. You know, whenever they ask you to, <clears throat> to deliver a new feature, they're not saying, hey, stop working on disaster recovery and go deliver this feature. They're assuming that disaster recovery is one of those things that you're just already doing. You know, to use another um, horrible medical example, like if you go in to have your appendix removed, 
You don't tell the doctor, hey, remove my appendix. And when you're done, be sure and, you know, stop all the bleeding and sew it back up and use antibiotics. You just assume that those things are going to happen as part of the process. And disaster recovery is one of those things that from a business person's perspective, they just assume that you're taking care of. So by thinking that you need permission to do it, I think you're setting yourself up for more challenges. Yeah, I totally agree. And I know, Jonathan, you caught that episode of MASH where they take the appendix out and then they fail to suture. No, that, that, that episode doesn't exist. <laughs> Anyways, what else should we ask you about or, or talk about any other topics that you think are, are relevant? What, what should me, a person who's too stupid to know what to ask, ask? Well, I mean, I think at a high level, um, it, it's really, do you understand your resilience strategy? And is it aligned with what your business needs? Um, and I will say that, that DevOps practitioners, uh, often go to high availability is my resilient strategy. Disaster recovery, I don't need to work worry about in the cloud. And the truth is you need both. High availability can mitigate a lot of outage scenarios, a lot of disaster scenarios. Um, and if you have an environment, an organization that will allow you to invest in significant architectural changes or just different strategies up front that are oftentimes uh, more challenging to engineer, take longer to build, then you might build yourself a ton of high availability into your application. You'll never build resilience to a cyber attack as high availability. And so fundamentally, you have to consider that particular scenario. You have to consider how am I going to get back online if uh, the guy sitting in the cube next to me goes rogue. Um, You have to consider ransomware attacks. They happen all the time these days. And so that that gets people typically opening their mind to there is more to what we need to do for resilience than just focus on a multi-AZ strategy, which everyone's really excited to build. And it is a great way to, to achieve resilience. It just doesn't give you all of the resilience that you need to have. So that's, that's where the DR side of the coin comes in. It's not going away. I think a lot of people sort of figure, well, that's what we did in a data center. In the cloud, we don't need to do DR any longer. And the truth is, uh, the cloud is just a bunch of data centers. Um, and a lot of those same outage scenarios you're susceptible to, regardless of where you're running your, your infrastructures. For sure. Not only are they still data centers, but now they're data centers that you don't control or have physical access yeah. to. So when there is an outage, you have even less ability to respond than you did back when you were racking your own servers. Sure. Yeah. And I don't. I don't want to go back to the rack your own servers world. I'm I'm very oh, excited <laughs> that I don't have to do those things. Um, but uh, but yeah, we 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 can't just forget about the disciplines that we learned over the the decades uh, before we moved into the cloud. Yeah, I don't think we've ever made it more than like two or three episodes where at least one of us on this show has said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to go back to a physical data center. I'm, I'm happy to deal with the challenges of the cloud to keep from going yeah. back into that cold data center. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Is there anything else we should talk about? Well, let's do picks then. I, I, I did, yeah. I have a couple picks. Um, they're both books. I've listened to both of them uh, on Audible, uh, but you can read them too if you like you know, using your eyes instead of your ears. Uh, the first one, um, it's called The Art of Business Value by Mark Schwartz. And he wrote another book. I, I think he wrote, it's the same author who wrote a book I read a while back, um, A Seat at the Table. Yeah, same author, uh, which is about how IT can sort of have an impact on business. And so this book, The Art of Business Value, is basically trying to define the concept of business value, which we talk about a lot, I think, Um whether we're doing DevOps or Agile or whatever, like, does that provide business value? Uh, you know, and we, we have these questions. But as he points out in the book, like, do you know what business value is? <laughs> I'll bet you don't. I bet <laughs> nobody at your company knows. <laughs> it's a pretty nebulous concept when you actually try to pin it down. You know, you try to st- staple that to the wall, you're, 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 it's like jello. It just falls apart as soon as you try. Uh, so he, he does uh, a pretty good job of explaining why it's difficult to explain and then uh, helping to 
to define it as, as well as we can. Uh, the most important thing isn't the answer. What's the definition, though? It's thinking about it. So it's a good book to read. I, I recommend it. And then the second book I want to recommend today, uh, I'm still in the middle of reading it. Um, it's called The Art of Action, How Leaders Close the Gaps Between Plans, Actions, and Results by Stephen Bungay. And I heard a podcast uh, where he was interviewed. I think it was um, the No Nonsense Agile podcast where he was interviewed. And so, so this book was originally a business book, but it's gotten a lot of attention from software developers um, in the Agile community. And so I'm reading it because uh, it's related to that. But he basically looks back to the 1800s uh, in the Prussian military and some uh, tactics they adopted and how the, uh, to, to, to really succeed in, in warfare and how that, that uh, is, is beneficial uh, in business. Basically, the, the idea is you, you can't plan ahead because you don't know what's going to happen. There's, there's too much random chance. And in the case of war, you have a, an enemy who's literally trying to, to hamper your, your capabilities and, and, and disrupt your plans. Uh, hopefully, it's not that adversarial in most software uh, development. Uh, but sometimes it is if you're, if you're trying to do antivirus or something like that or any sort of security-related stuff. Uh, but anyway, so those are my two picks for the, uh, for the week. The Art of Business Value by Mark Schwartz and The Art of Action by Stephen Bungay. Two arts of books for, for all the software people out there. Right on. Doug, what do you got for a pick? Well, gosh, so I mean, I, I, first time guest on the podcast, I, I didn't put in a forethought after I hear Jonathan. <laughs> uh, I think I think the the pick I'm going to go with uh, with an alcoholic pick here, if I can nice. do that. Nice, yeah. Nice. Uh, not not that I'm trying to be an alcoholic, uh, but I I have some friends that I hang out with too often. They're pushing me in that direction. Um, uh, I think that my pick is is Amari uh, today, and Amari is the plural of Amaro, and Amaris are a class of uh, aperitif from Italy. Um, you might be familiar with Campari or Aperol. Okay. These are these are sort oh, yeah. of the friendlier end of the Amari spectrum. Uh, but I've I've discover these recently you know a few months ago i i made a cocktail that called for one of these and i um uh, i bought it it was not a small investment but um uh but it turns out they're just an incredible incredible complex class of liqueurs that um you can make all sorts of incredible drinks from or you can enjoy them neat straight up uh and so I, I am here like Thursday night. I'm hosting my friends over. We're having a Mari night. I've, I've got to figure out three different cocktails to serve them from three different to, so they can experience this range of everything from, you know, slightly bitter and fantastic and a Negroni like Campari to utter cough syrup. Uh, <laughs> that's the other end of the spectrum that still makes a, a fantastic beverage if it's mixed the right way. So. So does does Nightbull qualify as an Amari? I, I don't know. Actually, it, <laughs> it, it, when I first had Fernet Bronco, which is one of the Amari that we're going to have on Thursday night, I was like, I, I feel like this is going to knock me out. I'm going to have a great night's sleep. And I'm going to wake <laughs> up uh, with, with no more nasal congestion. So um didn't turn out to have that effect, but um, uh, there was a moment I had hope. So... Right on. That's cool. I, I just recently was introduced to those because we were at the, um, we do happy hour with our friends every Friday night. And um, occasionally they have the distributors come in and they came in with a, um, a peach flavored drink that was, that was like that. Mm -hmm. And it was, it's like, wow, that's actually actually pretty nice they're delicious yeah 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 for sure they go down really really easy <laughs> cool so um my pick i think i want to say i picked this book last week um but it was just so good i'm gonna pick it again uh developer hegemony the future of labor by eric dietrich and the reason i like this book is because it talks about 
a little bit about how we got into this current working environment and how it doesn't really apply to software development, but there's centuries of this is how we've always done it leading to that. And so it's good at rethinking whether you work in DevOps or software engineering, it's good perspective on how to rethink the value that you bring to the business and um, how to just use that knowledge to advance your career. And he specifically talks about the fact that the way most of us advance in our career is through job hopping and then addresses why that is. Um, but it was, it was a pretty cool book. So that's my pick. I'll second that. That's a great book. Uh, right on. He has, he has other good books too. I haven't read his other books, but uh, I really do like his, his writing style. He's just, he does a great job of just making the pages drip with sarcasm when he wants to. <laughs> he has a great blog too. He's not as active as a, blo- a, a, a blogger now as he used to be, but DadeTech.com is a, a great blog for, for a lot of that same sort of wisdom. Right on. Well, I just want to point out that the intellectuals on this podcast both brought books and <laughs> lunch yeah, on I, the podcast. If, if I had is, thought about liquor, I probably would have recommended a whiskey. I had my, my birthday party was last week. I'm, I'm whopping 44 now. We had some great whiskeys. So I, maybe I'll save that for next week. That's a good one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You bring the whiskey pick. I'll bring the cigar pick. And there um, we go. Doug, you, we'll have, we'll have to have have to have you back on so that we can just make this a a uh, drinking exactly. podcast. Adventures and drunk. No, no, adventures and something other Dev than DevOps. <laughs> adventures is uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean it's eight thirty in the morning here. That's that's cool, right? You're not gonna judge if I hey, it's five thirty somewhere. Oh right? it happens to be five thirty here. Oh great. Oh <laughs> even better. We'll use Jonathan's time zone for the podcast. Fantastic. <laughs> Cool. So, Doug, if people want to get more information from you or talk with you about this or just find out more about you, how can they do so? Yeah, so I, I am Doug at RPO.io, uh, and you can always just go old school and send me an email. Nice. Uh, but most of the the community dialogue we're having these days is out on LinkedIn. So okay. um, track me down on LinkedIn, send me a connection request, let me know that you, you heard this. Uh, I get a lot of unsolicited connection requests these days and on linkedin uh, no most people sell me something so it you know certainly would be beneficial i think uh if if you let me know you at least listen to this podcast probably a lot of people listening to podcasts are going to try to sell me something now huh so hey i listened to this podcast can you uh, give me your credit card number (laughs) right yeah cool well doug thanks for thanks for coming on the show this was this was very enlightening and um I think it's one of those areas that we could all spend a lot more time thinking about, especially now, knowing that disaster recovery doesn't have to be the big overhaul that I initially thought that it would have to be. So thanks for coming on the show and sharing that with us. And um, everyone who's listening, thanks for listening. 